Section thirty six of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four by James Boswell, Section thirty six. Upon his mentioning that when he came to college, he wrote his first exercise twice over, but never did so afterwards. Miss Adams. I suppose, sir, you could not make them better. Johnson. Yes, madam, to be sure I could make them better. Thought is better than no thought. Miss Adams. Do you think, sir, you could make your ramblers better? Johnson. Certainly I could. Boswell. I'll lay a bet, sir, you cannot. Johnson. But I will, sir, if I choose. I shall make the best of them you shall pick out better. Boswell. But you may add to them. I will not allow of that. Johnson. Nay, sir, there are three ways of making them better. Putting out, adding, or correcting. During our visit at Oxford, the following conversation passed between him and me on the subject of my trying my fortune at the English bar. Having asked whether a very extensive acquaintance in London, which was very valuable and of great advantage to a man at large, might not be prejudicial to a lawyer by preventing him from giving sufficient attention to his business, footnote, Boswell began to eat dinners at the Inner Temple so early as 1775. He was not called till Hillary term, 1786, end of footnote. Johnson, sir, you will attend to business as business lays hold of you. When not actually employed, you may see your friends as much as you do now. You may dine at a club every day and sup with one of the members every night and you may be as much at public places as one who has seen them all would wish to be, but you must take care to attend constantly in Westminster Hall, both to mind your business, as it is almost all learnt there, for nobody reads now, and to show that you want to have business. Footnote. Mr. Afterwards Sir William Jones wrote two years earlier, whether it be a wise part to live uncomfortably in order to die wealthy is another question, but this I know from experience, and have heard old practitioners make the same observation, that a lawyer who is in earnest must be chained to his chambers in the bar for ten or twelve years together. End of footnote. And you must not be too often seen at public places, that competitors may not have it to say, he is always at the playhouse or at Ranelagh, and never to be found at his chambers. And, sir, there must be a kind of solemnity in the manner of a professional man. I have nothing particular to say to you on the subject. All this I should say to anyone. I should have said it to Lord Thurlow twenty years ago. The profession may probably think this representation of what is required in a barrister who would hope for success to be by much too indulgent, but certain it is that as 
the wits of charles found easier ways to fame some of the lawyers of this age who have risen high have by no means thought it absolutely necessary to submit to that long and painful course of study which a plowden a coke and a hail considered as requisite my respected friend mr langton has shown me in the handwriting of his grandfather a curious account of a conversation which he had with lord chief justice hale in which that great man tells him that for two years after he came to the inn of court he studied sixteen hours a day however his lordship added that by this intense application he almost brought himself to his grave though he were of a very strong constitution and after reduced himself to eight hours but that he would not advise anybody to so much that he thought six hours a day with attention and constancy was sufficient that a man must use his body as he would his horse and his stomach not tire him at once but rise with an appetite Footnote. my lord said that his rule for his health was to be temperate and keep himself warm he never made breakfasts but used in the morning to drink a glass of some sort of ale that he went to bed at nine and rose between six and seven allowing himself a good refreshment for his sleep that the law will admit of no rival nothing to go even with it but that sometimes one may for diversion read in the latin historians of england hoveden and matthew paris etc but after it is conquered it will admit of other studies he said a little law a good tongue and a good memory would fit a man for the chancery End of footnote. on wednesday june the nineteenth dr johnson and i returned to london he was not well to-day and said very little employing himself chiefly in reading euripides he expressed some displeasure at me for not observing sufficiently the various objects upon the road if i had your eyes sir said he i should count the passengers it was wonderful how accurate his observation of visual objects was notwithstanding his imperfect eyesight owing to a habit of attention that he was much satisfied with the respect paid to him at dr adams's is thus attested by himself i returned last night from oxford after a fortnight's abode with dr adams who treated me as well as i could expect or wish and he that contents a sick man a man whom it is impossible to please has surely done his part well after his return to london from this excursion i saw him frequently but have few memorandums i shall therefore here insert some particulars which i collected at various times the rev mr astle of ashbourne in derbyshire brother to the learned and ingenious thomas astle esq was from his early years known to dr johnson who obligingly advised him as to his studies and recommended to him the following books 
of which a list which he has been pleased to communicate lies before me in johnson's own handwriting universal history ancient Rollin's ancient history Huppendorf's introduction to history Vertot's history of the knights of malta Vertot's revolution of portugal Vertot's revolutions of sweden Cart's history of england present state of england geographical grammar Prudeau's connection nelson's feasts and fasts duty of man gentleman's religion clarendon's history watts's improvement of the mind watts's logic nature displayed laub's english grammar blackwall on the classics sherlock's sermons burnet's life of hale dupin's history of the church shuckford's connection law's serious call walton's complete angler sanders travels spratt's history of the royal society england's gazetteer goldsmith's roman history some commentaries on the bible footnote the recommendation in this list of so many histories little agrees with the fierce and boisterous contempt of ignorance with which according to lord macaulay johnson spoke of history End of it having been mentioned to dr johnson that a gentleman who had a son whom he imagined to have an extreme degree of timidity resolved to send him to a public school that he might acquire confidence sir said johnson this is a preposterous expedient for removing his infirmity such a disposition should be cultivated in the shade placing him at a public school is forcing an owl upon day speaking of a gentleman whose house was much frequented by low company rags sir he said will always make their appearance where they have a right to do it of the same gentleman's mode of living he said sir the servants instead of doing what they are bid stand round the table in idle clusters gaping upon the guests and seem as unfit to attend a company as to steer a man of war Footnote. northcote's account of reynolds table suits the description of this gentleman's mode of living a table prepared for seven or eight was often compelled to contain fifteen or sixteen there was a deficiency of knives and forks plates and glasses the attendance was in the same style there were two or three undisciplined domestics the host left every one at perfect liberty to scramble for himself rags is certainly a strong word to apply to any of the company but then strong words were what johnson used northcote mentions the mixture of company End of footnote. A dull country magistrate gave Johnson a long, tedious account of his exercising his criminal jurisdiction, the result of which was his having sentenced four convicts to transportation. Johnson, in an agony of impatience to get rid of such a companion, exclaimed, I heartily wish, sir, that I were a fifth. Johnson was present when a tragedy was read in which there occurred this line who rules all free men should himself be free footnote the passage occurs in brooks 
Earl of Essex at the close of the first act, where Queen Elizabeth says, I shall henceforth seek for other lights to truth, for righteous monarchs justly to judge, with their own eyes should see, to rule all free men should themselves be free. The play was acted at Drury Lane Theatre, old Mr. Sheridan taking the chief part. He it was who, in admiration, repeated the passage to Johnson, which provoked the parody. End of footnote. The company having admired it much, I cannot agree with you, said Johnson. It might as well be said, who drives fat oxen should himself be fat. He was pleased with the kindness of Mr. Cater, who was joined with him in Mr. Thrale's important trust, and thus describes him. There is much good in his character, and much usefulness in his knowledge. He found a cordial solace at that gentleman's seat at Beckenham in Kent, which is indeed one of the finest places at which I ever was a guest, and where I find more and more a hospitable welcome. Johnson seldom encouraged general censure of any profession, but he was willing to allow a due share of merit to the various departments necessary in civilised life. In a splenetic, sarcastical or jocular frame, however, he would sometimes utter a pointed saying of that nature. One instance has been mentioned where he gave a sudden satirical stroke to the character of an attorney. The too indiscriminate admission to that employment, which requires both abilities and integrity, has given rise to injurious reflections which are totally inapplicable to many very respectable men who exercise it with reputation and honour. Johnson, having argued for some time with a pertinacious gentleman, his opponent, who had talked in a very puzzling manner, happened to say, I don't understand you, sir. Upon which Johnson observed, Sir, I have found you an argument, but I am not obliged to find you an understanding. Footnote. That may be so, replied the lady, for aught I know, but they are above my comprehension. I ant obliged to find you comprehension, madam, curse me, cried he. Roderick Random, chapter 53. I protest, cried Moses. I don't rightly comprehend the force of your reasoning. No, oh, sir, cried the squire, I am your most humble servant. I find you want me to furnish you with argument and intellects, too. Vicar of Wakefield, chapter 7, end of footnote. Talking to me of Horry Walpole, as Horace, late Earl of Orford, was often called, footnote, in the first edition, as the Honourable Horace Walpole is often called, in the second edition, as Horace, now Earl of Orford, etc. Walpole succeeded to the title in December 1791. In answer to congratulations, he wrote, What has happened destroys my tranquillity. Surely no man of seventy-four, unless superannuated, can have the smallest pleasure in sitting at home in his own room, as I almost always do, and being called by a new name. He died March the 2nd, 1797. End of footnote.
johnson allowed that he got together a great many curious little things and told them in an elegant manner Footnote. in the rambler a character of a virtuoso is given which in many ways suits walpole it is never without grief that i find a man capable of ratiocination or invention enlisting himself in this secondary class of learning for when he has once discovered a method of gratifying his desire of eminence by expense rather than by labour and known the sweets of a life blessed at once with the ease of idleness and the reputation of knowledge he will not easily be brought to undergo again the toil of thinking or leave his toys and trinkets for arguments and principles mr walpole thought johnson a more amiable character after reading his letters to mrs thrale but never was one of the true admirers of that great man Footnote. walpole says i do not think i ever was in a room with johnson six times in my days the first time i think was at the royal academy sir joshua said let me present dr goldsmith to you he did now i will present dr johnson to you no said i sir joshua for dr goldsmith pass but you shall not present dr johnson to me in his journal of the reign of george the third he speaks of johnson as one of the venal champions of the court a renegade a brute an old decrepit hireling and as one of the subordinate crew whom to name is to stigmatize in his memoirs of the reign of george the third he says with a lumber of learning and some strong parts johnson was an odious and mean character his manners were sordid supercilious and brutal his style ridiculously bombastic and vicious and in one word with all the pedantry he had all the gigantic littleness of a country schoolmaster we may suppose a prejudice conceived if he ever heard johnson's account to sir george staunton that when he made the speeches in parliament for the gentleman's magazine he always took care to put sir robert walpole in the wrong and to say everything he could against the electorate of hanover Footnote. on may the twenty sixth seventeen ninety one walpole wrote of boswell's life of johnson i expected amongst the excommunicated to find myself but am very gently treated i never would be in the least acquainted with johnson or as boswell calls it i had not a just value for him which the biographer imputes to my resentment for the doctor's putting bad arguments purposely out of jacobitism into the speeches which he wrote fifty years ago for my father in the gentleman's magazine which i did not read then or ever knew johnson wrote till johnson died johnson said of these debates i saved appearances tolerably well but i took care that the whig dogs should not have the best of it lord holland said that whenever boswell came into a company where horace walpole was 
Walpole would throw back his head, purse up his mouth very significantly, and not speak a word while Boswell remained. Walpole says, Boswell, that quintessence of busybodies, called on me last week and was let in, which he should not have been, could I have foreseen it. After tapping many topics to which I made as dry answers as an unbribed oracle, he vented his errand. End of the celebrated heroic epistle in which Johnson is satirically introduced has been ascribed both to Mr. Walpole and Mr. Mason. One day at Mr. Courtenay's, when a gentleman expressed his opinion that there was more energy in that poem than could be expected from Mr. Walpole, Mr. Wharton, the late laureate, observed, It may have been written by Walpole and buckramed by Mason. He disapproved of Lord Hales for having modernised the language of the ever-memorable John Hales of Eton in an edition which his lordship published of that writer's works. Footnote. The title given by Bishop Pearson to his collection of Hales's writings is The Golden Remains of the Ever-Memorable John Hales of Eton College, etc. It was published in 1659. End of footnote. An author's language, sir, said he, is a characteristical part of his composition and is also characteristical of the age in which he writes. Besides, so when the language is changed, we are not sure that the sense is the same. No, sir, I am sorry Lord Hales has done this. Here it may be observed that his frequent use of the expression, no, sir, was not always to intimate a contradiction, for he would say so when he was about to enforce an affirmative proposition which had not been denied as in the instance last mentioned. I used to consider it as a kind of flag of defiance, as if he had said, any argument you may offer against this is not just. No, sir, it is not. It was like Falstaff's, I deny your major. Footnote. Sir James Mackintosh remembers that while spending the Christmas of 1793 at Beaconsfield, Mr. Burke said to him, Johnson showed more powers of mind in company than in his writings, but he argued only for victory. And when he had neither a paradox to defend nor an antagonist to crush, he would preface his assent with, Why no, sir? Croker. End of footnote. Sir Joshua Reynolds having said, that he took the altitude of a man's taste by his stories and his wit, and of his understanding by the remarks which he repeated, being always sure that he must be a weak man who quotes common things with an emphasis, as if they were oracles, Johnson agreed with him, and Sir Joshua having also observed that the real character of a man was found out by his amusements, Johnson added, Yes, sir. No man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. I have mentioned Johnson's general aversion to a pun. He once, however, endured one of mine. When we were talking of a numerous company in which he had distinguished himself highly, I said, Sir, you were a cod surrounded by smells. Is not this enough for you? 
at a time too when you are not fishing for a compliment he laughed at this with a complacent approbation old mr sheridan observed upon my mentioning it to him he liked your compliment so well he was willing to take it with pun sorts for my own part i think no innocent species of wit or pleasantry should be suppressed and that a good pun may be admitted along with the smaller excellencies of lively conversation had johnson treated at large de claris oratoribus he might have given us an admirable work when the duke of bedford attacked the ministry as vehemently as he could for having taken upon them to extend the time for the importation of corn lord chatham in his first speech in the house of lords boldly avowed himself to be an adviser of that measure Footnote. boswell here falls into a mistake about harvest time in seventeen sixty six there were corn riots owing to the dearness of bread by the act of the fifteenth of charles the second corn when under a certain price might be legally exported on september the twenty sixth seventeen sixty six before this price had been reached the crown issued a proclamation to prohibit the exportation of grain when parliament met in november a bill of indemnity was brought in for those concerned in the late embargo the necessity of the embargo was universally allowed it was the exercise by the crown of a power of dispensing with the laws that was attacked some of the ministers who out of office had set up as patrons of liberty were made the object of many sarcasms on the beaten subject of occasional patriotism End of footnote. my colleagues said he readers note lord chatham speaking as i was confined by indisposition did me the signal honour of coming to the bedside of a sick man to ask his opinion but had they not thus condescended i should have taken up my bed and walked in order to have delivered that opinion at the council board mr langton who was present mentioned this to johnson who observed now sir we see that he took these words as he found them without considering that though the expression in scripture take up thy bed and walk strictly suited the instance of the sick man restored to health and strength who would of course be supposed to carry his bed with him it could not be proper in the case of a man who was lying in a state of feebleness and who certainly would not add to the difficulty of moving at all that of carrying his bed when i pointed out to him in the newspaper one of mr grattan's animated and glowing speeches in favour of the freedom of ireland in which this expression occurred i know not if accurately taken we will persevere till there is not one link of the english chain left to clank upon the rags of the meanest beggar in ireland nay sir said johnson don't you perceive that one link cannot clank mrs thrale has published as johnson's a kind of parody or counterpart of a fine poetical passage in one of mr burke's speeches on american taxation 
it is vigorously but somewhat coarsely executed and i am inclined to suppose is not quite correctly exhibited i hope he did not use the words vile agents for the americans in the house of parliament and if he did so in an extempore effusion i wish the lady had not committed it to writing Footnote. the passages from the speech on conciliation with the colonies march the twenty second seventeen seventy five the image of the angel and lord bathurst was thus according to mrs piozzi parodied by johnson suppose mr speaker that to wharton or to marlborough or to any of the eminent whigs of the last age the devil had not with great impropriety consented to appear boswell was stung by what mrs piozzi wrote when recording this parody she said that she had begged johnson's leave to write it down directly a trick she continues which i have seen played on common occasions of sitting steadily in square brackets question mark stealthily down at the other end of the room to write at the moment what should be said in company either by dr johnson or to him i never practised myself nor approved of in another there is something so ill-bred and so inclining to treachery in this conduct that were it commonly adopted all confidence would soon be exiled from society End of footnote. End of section thirty six